And sometimes your job is to be very interactive and sometimes your job is to just be quiet and let the waves just blow around you and just wait until it's over. And if you're totally dependent, you can't do that. You get very confused. Now, any other comments or questions or thoughts? Oh, yeah, that's what everyone says. But, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers, I I didn't have this experience, but I've heard many people say that the most important relationship they had growing up was the grandparent. Just because of that, because the grandparent can be so tuned into the child as a person and doesn't get nearly as confused as as an everyday parent does. Even from a distance you can be. I've discovered that a little bit in my relationship to my nephew. That you know, I, I because I just sort of I, I just didn't have relatives, and when I grew up, just my just my family. There was a very it was a very small family, and they were far away. But I'm I'm very interested in just how much an outside adult can have a role in a child's life, um, especially a family member, because they're so I I've really grown to appreciate it as a very um, wonderful aspect of things. Yeah, as the what does the adage say? If I knew how much fun it was having. To have was to have grandchildren, I would have done it first. <laughs> Most grandparents are a little surprised by how much fun it is. That's what I've heard. But uh, one of my friends who have one child, and uh, he was an extremely difficult child to raise. In fact, the parents were just saying to me recently he was so independent that the day he learned to walk, he left home. <laughs> the father was saying this little diaper just sort of bobbing down the road you know he just opened the door and went outside the day he learned to walk but he was always very very independent and then now he has a daughter and the grandchild is just the sweetest thing and the grandmother was saying the little girl said anything you want grandma and she said I didn't know a child could say something like that <laughs> <laughs> so, was there another question or comment? What was it? I couldn't remember. What were we talking about? Mm. That's right. Sharon and I were discussing um, the fact that the, the the extension of a lot of what we're saying is that you don't necessarily have to feel in tune with your own family, and you don't have to feel guilty if you don't feel in tune with your own family. That was what we were discussing. You know, because a lot of times we try to push too hard to manufacture feelings we don't have, and we think there's something wrong with us. Now, if we don't feel close to anybody in the world, that's something different. But if we just know that the family that we were born into is fine people, but they're not my people, um, you don't have to think that you have to just work so hard to make something out of it, just Swami's comment to me was, "You should be, uh, you should not be unkind, unless um, your people warrant that. <laughs> you know, unless your family really has has done things that are just so unwholesome for you that it's okay. But you don't. Other, but you also don't need to try to feel that you're obligated. I, I was joking with Sharon that I myself have." I don't have any. I don't have any sentimental feeling about family at all, because I just family to me doesn't exist. What exists is spiritual family and true affinity. Mere blood relations and birth relation does not necessarily create anything, and um, and sometimes we we really do, as I think I said. You know, we just choose a place where we don't have much involvement because we really don't want to. 
I mean, I, I, to a certain extent that's true of me, although I must confess I've discovered a lot more involvement in, in karma with my family than I thought I had. But uh, when I was young, and I used to, I remember especially the book Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, you know, which is the story of this woman who defies convention and leaves her husband and goes with her lover and ends up throwing herself in front of a train track. But it's a whole story of, a, of social convention. And, and family expectation and how it ruled a person's life. I was so upset reading that book. And my whole childhood, every time I read anything about how either social convention or family expectations created confinement, I, I would just become incensed. So I'm, I'm perfectly aware of the fact that I've, I've lived through experiences where family was such an enemy to my well-being that I have a, a real sort of thing like this. That's why I grew up in a very small family with not a lot of, you know, I just, I just didn't want, I thought I didn't have any, I apparently have more than I thought, but I had very little, very, very little, because I wanted to just go for God. And the other thing that's really important to understand is the best thing you can do for the people that you're related to is help yourself spiritually. There is an automatic blessing given to them for your spiritual advancement, because there is some tie however tenuous, and if you advance spiritually, they are helped. And so especially if the choice becomes pleasing relatives or doing what you know is right spiritually, don't hesitate for a second. Now this came up in the context of Swami Kriyananda communicating to us that Paramahansa Yogananda was emphatic that you needed to spend Christmas in the spiritual environment with the spiritual family and that you should not go away at Christmas and spend it in, with worldly people in a worldly environment. Because he said Christmas is a very profound spiritual opportunity and you just shouldn't dissipate it. And Swami in that context was saying, even if they're furious with you, because some people said, oh, they'll be so upset. He said their souls will rejoice. And so if you do the right thing spiritually, you will really help them. They'll really be much happier. Now Swami, to be to tell you really how it acted out though, Swamiji for years, as long as his parents, they lived in the Bay Area, as long as his mother was alive, his father died before his mother. He would uh, do all of Christmas at Ananda, and for many years he would drive to the Bay on Christmas night. And then as he got a little bit older, he started driving on the day after. But for years, he would finish this enormous Christmas at Ananda, then he would get in his car and drive here. So he honored them, but he, he didn't sacrifice for them. So it's, it, but that's because, and that to me has been very, very useful when I've had to choose my spiritual duties over what my family expected. It's just their egos that are displeased, not their souls. And I've just concentrated on the soul and then just let it be. Okay? Same with your children. If you do what's right spiritually, even if they don't like it, it doesn't matter. It's right. Okay? Well, I think that is the end of the story. Next week is the last class, and we do the very last chapter in the book and also the, the wedding vows. So, okay. Thank you. My pleasure. I like the way Swamiji, sort of at the end of this book, sort of does this sort of little sneaky thing. He says, sort of now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crash. He says, now, for those of you who are really serious about the spiritual life, I'll talk just to you. And, of course, most of the people, you know, in this room are 
more serious about the spiritual life than the average person. And I haven't exactly felt as if, as if he's let us off the hook completely. But he, he addresses in such an interesting way in this last chapter the whole sort of dilemma, which doesn't, uh, which most people in the world don't necessarily think about, but the whole sort of dilemma of the monastic versus the spiritual life, uh, the householder life, I mean, and sort of how we can find a way to create a new model of spirituality, actually, in both settings. And he, he's also, in a very, very gentle way, um, really telling us in this chapter, don't kid yourselves. If you really think that you're going to be able to sort of set up a little happy place for yourself um, in this marriage without putting God first, and without continuing to make the absolute same effort that a monk or a nun would have to make and still be happy, it's just a snare and a delusion and don't even spend any time thinking about it. Um, there was one sentence in an earlier chapter which really had struck me so so forcefully. It's a very simple sentence. It said, most people marry to buttress their own fragile sense of uh, security or self-worth. And it, it just was sort of a very simple statement, just sort of uh, saying that, uh, and in that context he talked about, this was the previous chapter, he talked about instead of marrying out of a generous spirit and a desire to really uh, make a, be a positive influence in someone else's life, we marry first and foremost because we're compelled by our own limitations and our own needs. And somehow or another, when the pressure's on, um, that's what we'll tend to fall back toward. And that is, in fact, what happens in so many marriages, so many situations in life, that we get to a certain point, and then the question comes up, well, what about me? You know, and, and it sometimes... Um, I always say it to myself like this, what about me? You know, <laughs> it's sometimes helpful to make fun of attitudes that you might otherwise have seriously, so that when you're inclined to say that in a more serious manner, you'll hear yourself having made a joke about it. So I find myself unable to say the sentence in a normal manner. <laughs> what about me? It's always, what about me in this situation? But uh, what Swami is really uh, talking to us about in this last chapter is is the spiritual path, no matter how it's lived, and that the spiritual path is the same in all situations. He, um, years ago, in an effort in our community for us to sort of try to get a handle on how marriage really ought to work, people wanted Swami to talk about the householder path. And he, he after a while, he really had to just say simply and directly, there's no such thing. There's only one spiritual path, and it really makes no difference what you're doing. You're always on it. And in this um, chapter, there's a few really wonderful phrases where he talks about we have to get this thought out of our mind that being spiritual means do, means doing spirit, apparently spiritual things. And he talks about um, Brother Lawrence, who wrote the wonderful book, The Practicing the Presence of God. And Brother Lawrence is some obscure monk at some monastery uh, some centuries ago. Who, who obviously lived an extraordinarily saintly life and left this book as a testament to it. 
But Brother Lawrence made the statement that I get as much inspiration from picking up a straw as I do from being in the chapel saying my prayers. And as Swami emphasized, he said, it's not merely, it's not that picking up a straw is inherently such a spiritual attitude, but that Brother Lawrence had understood that it's all about our consciousness. And so, in a very real sense, we really have to approach our relationships with a, 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 as renunciates in the sense that we recognize that the only way to happiness is by renunciation of the ego. And that any other um, teaching, once you reach a certain level of your search for God, is just a bypass, and that you might as well go straight to the main event. Now, I say that somewhat tentatively because not everyone has achieved that degree of psychological integration or that just sort of basic level of, of mental and emotional health where you can really sort of leave it all behind. But nonetheless, I, I want to assume it for the sake of this discussion. The difficulty with marriage, you may remember when I, I was earlier talking in much earlier weeks on this, that I had asked Swami Kriyananda the question once about why a renunciate path might be considered better than a, than a householder path, besides many, many of the obvious things. He said, because the difficulty on a householder path, the society almost expects you to think in terms of fulfilling your desires. And I, he specifically said that in the context of the difference between a celibate life and a life in which there is a sexual relationship. It, that it gets you in the habit of thinking that desires are there to be fulfilled. Now, at the same time, Swami writes this chapter in a very interesting way because he contrasts the householder and the monastic life step by step. And he also says that in the monastic life, it needs to be understood that the emphasis needs to be now on the joy of the search for God, not in terms of suffering. And... Uh, and that that is really, and it's not about what you do, but it's about the consciousness with which you do it. It's not about any external form. So it's not as if um, on the householder path either we need to suddenly become austere. It's more a question of deep within ourselves really understanding what the purpose of our life is and how we can integrate everything we're doing toward that higher purpose. And solving our problems. Paridas, who always has a very clever way of saying things, made the statement once, he, he made up an acronym which he called SPY DOG, which is, uh, which is solving your problems in the direction of God. That's how he puts it. And when we're in relationship with someone else, there's often a temptation to try to solve our problems in the direction of sort of just adjusting the situation until we both feel more comfortable. And what Swamiji is urging us to do, if we're devotees, is to only adjust ourselves in the direction of greater and greater spiritual freedom. Now, the, um, the wonderful secret of this, uh, especially if both parties are inclined this way, but even if just one is, is that the only way we're ever really going to be happy is to remove from our consciousness the causes of suffering. And the causes of suffering are always, in every situation, within our own selves. 
it's so hard sometimes to really profoundly appreciate that. But everything Yogananda said, he just put it in the most graphic terms, when he said situations are always neutral. Whether you experience them as happy or sad is entirely dependent upon your state of mind in relation to them. Now, I don't say this to mean that therefore a person should never take action. I don't think that to be passive all the time is necessarily spiritual. But to, be, to understand at all times that the real solution to whatever we're suffering is always a matter of greater self-discipline and greater self-understanding just sort of gets us out of the endless trap that people are in, especially nowadays. I just, I see it over and over and over again in relationships, and I myself lived it out for such a long time, I have a great deal of sympathy. There's just this great feeling that if I could just really get you to understand what I need, and if I could just keep telling you clearly enough what I need, then somehow or another, you would be able to provide it, and then everything would be okay. I was reflecting recently that I've never known a husband to change because his wife was pressuring him to change. And I've never known a wife to be able to change because her husband was mad at her and really wanted her to be different. I mean in fundamental ways. I don't mean you can't learn to sort of put away the dishes or fold your socks. I mean, such things can be done. But I mean the more fundamental kind of difficulties that create so much distress in marriages, like if you only communicated with me more. And if that's what you meant, why didn't you really say it? And can't you be more responsible about the way you spend money? Why didn't you call me if you knew you were going to be late? You know, why do you always say I when we're really talking about us? You know, just all the different things that people are always upset with each other about that just gradually become like um, sort of a, a burr under the saddle or sand in your shoe or something like that, that they just seem so ludicrous when you're not in it and so extremely large when you are, you know? And the, the, the degree and level of calm acceptance that one can find within oneself if we can just persuade ourselves that that's the place to solve the problem. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. And I want to go back to everything Swami has said before. He said you can't just suppress and you can't hold something back if you can't do it charitably. So it doesn't mean that you never speak. But the question is, what are we deeply committed to? You know, it's... uh, Marriages are so fascinating. We just had a wedding at the community on Saturday, and I know many of you were there, some of you at least were there. And, you know, it was a particularly adorable wedding. So many of us are sort of coming around for the second or third time, or are a little bit over the hill by the time we're marrying, but this was a delightfully young couple, you know, marrying for the first time, just beautiful and sweet, and romantic as all get out, and just it just couldn't have been better. And there you are watching it, and you think to yourself, you know, time passes. What, what, what really will make this relationship um, fulfill the promise of a wedding day? And it's, it's none of the um, I, me, mine sort of issues. 
It's none of the, oh, we're so well-suited for each other, you're so good for me, I like you so much, and you like me so much. All of it is just based on this very profound individual commitment to take responsibility for our own happiness. And the question is, how do we take responsibility for our own happiness? And that is simply the spiritual path. You know, if the spiritual path is just this very unrelenting necessity to focus everything back into our own consciousness and ask ourselves, not what is somebody doing to me, but what can, what can I do differently? And of course we can talk to each other, we can communicate, we can talk about the difficulties we're having doing that, we can talk about ways in which we can help each other do it, but if the, if the direction is always toward how can I change my consciousness, now can, not how can I change the world around me. You know, in other contexts when we talk about spiritual development, we often talk about the four castes of India as being in, in the highest tradition, a, a real progression of how the soul evolves from bondage into freedom. It's not a question of it being a social system. It's become frozen into that. But the real essence of it is how the soul evolves from bondage into freedom. And I want to, I want to talk about those four stages, um, emphasizing particularly what relationships look like in each of those stages. The first stage is called the Shudra, and many of you have heard me talk about this before. And it's characterized essentially by the concept of a peasant in the most um, sort of traditional sense. We really don't see Shudras as much in this country, especially not in California, um, as you do when you travel in some third world countries where you really see just, you know, masses of people whose consciousness is exceedingly physical, utterly uncreative, and whose goal in life is to become as unconscious as possible. The, what characterizes a shudra is to solve all problems by, be, by going unconscious. Now, bear in mind, all of us have elements of this. You know, we go into denial or whatever. But the characteristic of a shudra in relationships is entirely parasitic. The question is, what can I get from this, and how little can I give? Okay? So that's sort of the first stage, is that we just, we just think in those terms about what's going to come to us and how little effort can I put out for this. And sometimes it, we get in those moods and sometimes you look around and you see people who are just having shudra relationships or they're shudra in the way they think. Now the second stage of development is called the Vaishya level. And the Vaishya level is characterized as the merchant. And what it really means is after the shudra begins to sort of be forced to put out a little bit of energy, it begins to realize that if it puts out more energy, it will get more for itself. And we advance from the thought of just being parasitical, you know, sort of what can I get without putting out any energy. We, we, we're, we're willing to put out energy, but only if we can trade it for something in return. That's why that's the concept of the merchant. You know, the merchant can't give his goods away, he has to sell them. So when you get into relationships at the Vaisha level, you may be very giving in the relationship, but it's always a measured kind of giving. Because if I give, I expect back. These are, this is the level in which we take the household chores and divide them up. You know, and if doing the laundry takes 2.5 hours, then doing the lawn takes two and a quarter hours, then you owe me 15 minutes of vacuuming until we just sort of finally get to exactly the same level and everything. Or it can be just very simply that I will be loving and kind to you 
as long as you are loving and kind to me. But as soon as you're not nice to me, then I will no longer be nice to you. Swami Kriyananda recently was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter about the whole long saga with SRF. And the reporter has uh, is interested in, is writing a story about SRF and Ananda and the lawsuit and everything like that. But he has no um, uh, involvement in the spiritual path himself, at least not apparently. So Swami Kriyananda made the simple statement that despite everything, he still loves the people at SRF. You know, Diamata and the others, they're his spiritual brothers and sisters. And the reporter just found it, he just couldn't figure out what Swami could even possibly mean by that. And so later Swamiji wrote a letter to him, so trying to say it more deeply. He said, I have never felt that whether I give love is conditioned by how people respond. It's just a simple statement, and we can all sort of say that, but it's really quite something to actually be able to live in. Because almost all of us, are how we respond to people is conditioned by how they respond back to us. And if somebody is consistently unkind to us, then it's very hard for us to keep loving them in the same way. Now, bear in mind, even Master said that if every time you put your hand out to someone, he slaps it away, after a while you might just want to put your hands in your pockets. So it's not that we just sort of keep walking out to be knocked down again, but to put our hands in the po- our pockets doesn't mean that we close our hearts. You know, at this present point with SRF, we're fighting very hard against them. But, but that, in Swamiji's mind, invalidly so, is separate from whether or not we love them. We're just responding appropriately, but it doesn't have to become a personal matter with us because soul to soul, it's still the same. Now, a Vaisha would simply not be able to understand that kind of love and would certainly not be able to live up to it. It would be just a question of reciprocity. And as soon as the love is gone, I'm not going to do it anymore. Or as Yogananda sort of says, you know, as soon as I'm not having fun anymore, as soon as this doesn't feel right anymore, I'm out of here. Swami often jokes about that. You know, as soon as it doesn't feel right, people just separate. I mean, things stop feeling right a hundred times. I was speaking to someone just the other day, saying, anyone that I know, and I'm blessed to know a number of friends who have quite long marriages, you know, two decades or so, which is what I'm sort of rounding the curve toward, um, understands the fact that you have long periods of time when you don't get along at all. And it sounds so peculiar to people who separate easily or often. Um, I know once uh, I was uh, David and I were having a disagreement, and I don't remember about the particular details, but I don't know whether I think I was a little bit in his doghouse at that point. I think he was fine. I was, I was fine with him, but but uh, I mean I thought he was fine, but he didn't think I was very fine. <laughs> so I'm trying to say. And uh, our friends Durga and Vidura were visiting, and we know them exceedingly well, and there's there's no pretense in their company. And we still lived in our very small apartment, and in, even within that very small apartment, it was obvious that David and I were sitting as far away from each other as we could. <laughs> and either Durga or Vidura made some comment about it, and I just quite cheerfully said, David doesn't like me very much right now. Vidura got this sort of look of wide-eyed wonder on his face, and he said, well, you can't expect always to like the person you live with. <laughs> you know, <just> like, <laughs> I mean, what could be more natural than to not like them? And it was just such a, a simple truth that the mere fact that you're not getting along and you don't like each other doesn't have anything to do with how, whether you love each other. 
It just means that a, for a temporary obstruction has come between that, but it doesn't have really have anything to do with it. And, you know, even the fact that it could be joked about so lightly gives one the sense of how casual it can be. Now, of course, that's a hard one place to come to. There has to be a lot of water under the bridge before you have that kind of strength. But what we're learning to cultivate as devotees is not merely a human love that is offered like a Vaishya when it's convenient. What we're learning to cultivate as devotees is the capacity to simply be an expression of love. Now, who was it? Where were we yesterday when someone was saying, um, who was saying, it was somebody was talking about an Indian person who was saying that in India, they don't, where were we? Oh, the monastic meaning. Sydney said that. Sydney, can you repeat what he said? It was so funny. <laughs> What's true? Yeah, in America, we're always trying to, in the West, we're always trying to affirm the ego. I love you. You love me. And the devotee is just trying to get into that stream of love and be an instrument for it. Because if you imagine that you can really love selflessly with the willpower of the ego, you can't. It's really just as simple as that. The ego is ruled by its likes and dislikes. That's all there is to it. And the, the power to, to move beyond the vicious stage of relationships is the power to move yourself beyond the vicious stage. And what comes after the vicious stage is what's called kshatriya. And kshatriya is the, the soldier. It's, it's, it's characterized by the soldier or by the soldier king. Now, that seems sort of odd, doesn't it? Because we think of a soldier who, as one who kills. But the image is still as apt for these reasons. Soldier is one who is willing to sacrifice himself for a cause, who values truth and what he believes in more than he values his own, even his own life. In other words, truth rules, principle rules, ideals rule, not comfort and my preferences. Because naturally, no soldier wants to die or be injured or go into great suffering and danger, but he has the willpower to do it because of his devotion to the cause. And so also at the kshatriya level, um, it, it, the soldier is an apt metaphor, because at the kshatriya level we begin to recognize that the real battle, that there is a battle going on, and that battle is with ourselves. At the Vaishya level we think it's a battle with the world around us, and all we have to do is make the right deal. You know, we just have to get into the right situation where you'll give me back just what I want so that I can give you just what I want. And we're always like trying to arrange it. We're trying to get other people to get organized. We try to try to make ourselves comfortable by making the world around us conform to our ideal of what we want. And we all fall in our relationships, you know, from wherever we, whatever our normal resting point is. We all fall down to being just shudras and, and sometimes it's just so funny. It's fun to play with these things. You know, in your own bedroom, nothing is very far away, but sometimes David will be lying on the bed and <clears throat> he'll ask me to get something for him, which is, you know, three feet away from where he can reach it. <laughs> but it's just sort of the, the pleasure of just being a sloth and having somebody do something for you. I mean, it's not a normal attitude. It could be a normal attitude for some people, but not for him. But also we fall into more easily the thought of trying to force someone to be different so that I will be more comfortable. And so often our so-called helpful advice to people 
is really just our need for them to be different so that I will feel better. You may even be right. You see, that's the snare and delusion of it. What you're suggesting may in fact be a good idea for them. But your motivation, if one's motivation is only I need it so that I can feel better, then there's no magnetic truth in it. And so it doesn't work. The one you love will see right through it. That's why husbands never change just because their wives are pressuring them and wives don't change just because their husbands want them to. Because if it's not really coming from a selfless place, there's almost an instinctive desire to resist it. But at the kshatriya level, we begin to fight the real battle. And we recognize that, you know, anything can happen outside of me. But unless I have mastery over my own inner nature, it won't really make any difference. You know how how long we struggle to get conditions just exactly right, only to discover that we're still not happy. I mean, how many of us have lived through that? Or I just I was saying to people last night, I've recently upgraded my computer system, and you know, one gets so excited about upgrading your computer system, and I just thought I had it all perfect, and then it just went kablooey on me, and being totally ignorant, I had to call my friend to come over, and as she was sitting there, she just looked at me and said so sweetly. Computer upgrades are a snare and illusion. <laughs> you think they're going to make you so happy, and they really never do. <laughs> you know? And it is true, exactly true. And so it is that we, we have this thought that if we just can just get the last little inch together, it's very much like that story in the life of Krishna and his mother, when little Krishna was driving his mother Yashodara crazy with all his pranks, so she went out and she was going to tie him up, but she had a length of string and she wrapped it around the tree and she wrapped it around Krishna. It was just a few inches short. So she tied another piece of string onto it and then she wrapped it around the tree and wrapped it around Krishna. It was still a few inches short. And she did it about three or four times and finally she realized, well, she realized many things. But she realized in that story you can't bind the infinite Lord. She asked his permission to allow her to tie him up and then she was able to. But it's also a sign of just when you take matter and try to make it satisfy you completely, make it encompass the infinite, it'll always come up short. And so at a certain point in the course of our relationships with people, whether we're single or not, or married, we finally realize that really the battle is just with me. You know, that circumstances are good enough. And I know sometimes when I say that to people, they consider that to be such a sellout and a I get all kinds of letters back about of many things. But really, it's an exceedingly practical realization that things are good enough. And sometimes you also have to say, quite honestly, nobody better would marry me. <laughs> you know, Sometimes the thought is, well, this one isn't good enough and I'm going to get someone better. Because, but we don't realize that this is about the top of the line for us a lot of times. You know, and I don't mean that people aren't sometimes just impossible and you shouldn't stay with them. But still, that the battle isn't with the outside world. The battle is with me. And the kshatriya, relationships at the kshatriya level are, um, sometimes we say, symbiotic, which is that we both live according to ideals and then just things get better and better because we add energy to one another. You know, it's a sort of a trading of energy where things get better and better. And there isn't this calculating and measuring and seeing who's doing what and whether you're pleasing me. It's just giving your energy into it and then the sum of the parts is more than either one is individually. Because there's also 
And Swami touches on this. A great positive power. I don't have any amplification, so I'll speak louder. A little more, I, I was getting lazy thinking I was wearing a microphone. Thank you, Mother. Um, there's also a tremendous positive power that Swami writes about in having the opportunity to constantly learn to balance our own natures by being confronted by the complement to our own. You know, and he, he talks about just, we're always in the context of reason and feeling if we're in some kind of a relationship with someone of the, Swami uses the word complementary sex instead of opposite, because opposite is too strong a word for the way the relationship really works. But this whole sort of both symbolic and literal process of balancing out between reason and feeling. And, and so many men and so many women fight against it for so many years. You know, just always being frustrated about the way he is and always being frustrated about the way she is. You know that wonderful song from My Fair Lady, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? And all those tremendously amusing lines of the two men speculating on all the things that they could just so easily take from one another that any woman would get so upset about. And why can't a woman be more like a man? But whether it's it's the direct complementary nature of a man and a woman, or it's just the sheer fact of having to expand our awareness to include someone else's reality, we should never lose track of how sort of dynamically beneficial it can be. You may remember, I think I said at the earlier on in this class, that Swami remarked once that we have this thought that we want to marry someone who's just like us. But he said, really, that's a terrible thing when it happens because it merely increases the delusion that our way is right. Right? Because the way we look at the world is so arbitrary, and yet we become so locked into it that we're just terribly threatened when anybody else wants to do things differently or make different decisions or go in different directions for different reasons. But the opportunity to expand, to trust other people, to uh, give up control, to allow feeling to rule instead of reason, to allow reason to be expressed instead of just feeling, all of these things are such great opportunities for our growth that if we just see our lives together it's just this sort of constant experiment in sort of what will happen if. I used to joke at Ananda Village when, in the early years, I used to joke at Ananda Village in the early years that um, when it was very much more chaotic and just sort of less organized as a place, I used to say to Jyotish sometimes that perhaps the whole community was just a very sophisticated experiment in how to deal with lunatics. <laughs> And very far off beyond the edge of what we could see, there was some kind of offense. <laughs> I realized that movie Truman, is that the name of it? The one that was about the man who had actually grown up in a television show was sort of the same, <laughs> the same theory. But sometimes I like to think that that's really all that's going on, that this is just a great experiment in sort of seeing what will happen if we're given a lot of freedom. Because in fact it is. You know, God sends us out here with all this freedom to see if we can see through the delusion to the love if we can see that no matter what comes to us, it's really just one project, and that project is just to stay in our hearts and to remain loving and kind and open. Haridas, again, who's so cheeky, is reputed to have said once to his wife, his wife Roma is um, more outspoken and more excitable by nature than she is, and she said once, 
she and Haridas were beginning to have an argument about something, and sort of right in the middle of it, Haridas kind of smiled at her and he said, I'm not caught yet, are you? <laughs> Which is a very good thing to think about. You know, Are we really caught yet in this delusion that I need to be unkind and I need to put pressure on you and I need to try to make you different? Or are we still free from that? So the, the idea of a kshatriya, which is very relevant to relationships, is we run our relationships according to the principles, the right principles. Not what do I want, but simply what is right. And that's where real spirituality comes from. Spirituality really comes from just understanding what's right and disciplining ourselves to do it. And no, it's not always easy. By no means is it easy. And sometimes we have to work up to it very slowly. But as Swami says in here, you know, we should adjust ourselves uh, to our failures rather than adjust our principles to our failures. In other words, that if you know that that's the top of the mountain, but you're going to stop right here, but you still know that's the top of the mountain, you're really just fine. All you're doing is postponing the eventual ascent. But if this is as high as you can climb, and you say there's no higher place to go, this is it, then you're really in trouble because you've taken away the whole direction of your personal growth. So in our relationships, even if we have to compromise you know, our capacity to live up to the highest ideal, make it a conscious compromise. Say, I know that I'm being upset at this point. I know that there's really no need for me to feel this great compulsion to make you different. I know that I don't really have to be so mad about what so-and-so just said. And then you just have to say, but I am. And therefore, I'm going to have to work from this point to sort of get myself back onto an equilibrium. But I never honestly have to feel justified in doing it. You see, that we always keep track of the principle that my happiness is my own responsibility, and even if in this time I think it's dependent on what somebody else is doing to or for me or not doing it, really it just comes back to that. Um, Vasudeva, a man who lived here for many years, had the great good fortune in his life, which he knew, to have married a woman named Jacqueline, who many of you also know, who was an angel incarnate. And Vasudeva said when he left home, you know, to go off from his mother and his father, his mother gave him one piece of advice. She said, whatever you do, don't marry an unhappy woman. <laughs> and he sort of kept that advice and listened to it and only married Jacqueline, who was the farthest thing from an unhappy woman. But I've often remembered that because I see people um, linked together when one or the other of them is determined to be an unhappy person. And it's perhaps the most heartbreaking situation that I have ever I ever encounter. Because, as Yogananda said, if you are determined to be unhappy, no power on earth can unhappy, no power on earth can make you happy. And by the same token, if you are determined to be happy, no power on earth can make you unhappy. But if you are determined to be an unhappy person, woe be unto the person that you have married because woe is what they will experience, because no amount of effort on anybody's part will ever turn you around until you decide to be turned around. And sometimes unhappy people really imagine that somehow or another somebody owes them something to make them happy, or the desperate thought that something will. But that's not the principle that a kshatriya lives by. 
principle realizes I wrestle with my own unhappiness. I do not impose it on the world around me or demand that the world treat me differently. Swami talks about his mother in this chapter so touchingly, you know, about what a sweet and a dear woman she was. And indeed she was. She really was quite exceptional in exactly the ways he describes. She was just very quiet and unassuming, actually a little bit daft in a, in a charming sort of artistic way. You know, she was a, a musician and just sort of had a, cultivated a charmingly feminine quality of, of not needing to be terribly practical as her husband was an engineer, you know. But what really emanated from her at all times was exactly what Swamiji describes, which is just this sort of intangible goodness. I remember, I remember when we used to visit them from time to time with Swamiji and occasionally on her own. And for some reason, David had a birthday. I don't know what number birthday it was. She died. She must have died a long time ago because she died shortly after our wedding. So that was quite a long time ago. Um, but uh, it was David's birthday, and I remember she shook his hand as we came in, and she said, congratulations on your birthday. And then she sort of looked at him from her wrinkled little face and said, but I must warn you, if you keep on like this, you're going to end up just like me. <laughs> so sweet. I'll never forget that. <laughs> but he uses her as an example. He knew her. But he, it helps focus in, in a householder context, where so much of your life is just every day. Now, of course, some of us, you know, living in spiritual community have perhaps more gr greater explicit opportunities to be serviceful, but in, in a directly spiritual way. But nonetheless, a great deal of the householder's life. I mean, I just am amazed how much time I spend just on the most mundane level taking care of stuff. You know, taking the laundry out, just picking up all the things there are to pick up. I look around sometimes and just... The whole house is disintegrated again. And I just, I just, it's just so discouraging. You know, there's just paper piled up everywhere and clothes, and it's just so. Yogananda said aversion to housework is what he called a, a sattvic tamasic quality. Now, sattvic is, yeah, tamasic is very low consciousness, and sattvic is very high consciousness. And it's, it's a, a sattvic tamasic quality for this reason. It's, it's tamasic because it's just sheer laziness that doesn't want to do it. It's sattvic because you're aware that it's totally pointless. <laughs> so it has both sides in it. You don't want to waste your time and you don't want to put out energy, both qualities. So I often think of that, you know, when I just see it. But, and then you wash dishes, you make food, you know, it's just, and, and all of it is like once it's done, it's just over and it starts again. And what have you accomplished? You know, I have a, I, Sometimes I can. Sometimes I just want to take everything in the house and just throw it away. I want to have one bowl, one spoon. You know, I do. I, I periodically I throw everything I can away within the confines of the life we have to live. You know, I have to be prepared to serve dinner to fifty at any point, so I can't throw a lot of things away. But nonetheless, if we can't find a way to elevate that experience, just a great deal of our life will be will be wasted. You know. And, and we may long then, 
which is very detrimental to our relationships. We begin to we look at our husband or our children and all that it, ins- it requires of us and think, oh, I would be much better off spiritually if I didn't have to deal with all of this. I mean, that's a real strong thought that, that comes into people's minds. If it wasn't for you, I'd be better off. I mean, there's, there's two sides to it. People think, well, I'll never be able to advance spiritually unless I have someone to love. Or then you have someone to love and you think you'll never be able to get anywhere unless they go away. But the main point is that in every moment, it's just our consciousness and that's all it is. It's just that wonderful balance between intuitive feeling and calm reason just sort of working itself out bit by bit. And just which side of it and what is needed. You know, ultimately we all have to make a perfect circle. It's not as if um, we can just end up being only masculine or only feminine, only reason or only feeling. We all have to be a perfect circle. And there's a wonderful, just um, palpable exchange of magnetism that takes place in relationships. And Swamiji talks about it. Cultivate your relationship on that level. You know, cultivate silence. Cultivate just side-by-sideness that's not really interactive. Cultivate shared, uplifting experiences. Because it's at those times, perhaps much more than any other, when the real um, bonding in your relationships takes place. I was in a the line at an airport once. I don't know if I told the story in this class or not, about the woman, women who were talking about the couple who never talked. Yeah, and I just, I think how... Um, how much deeper we can be when we become deep in ourselves. And and how much more interesting everything is when we become deep in ourselves. And how there's absolutely no, no uh, alternative but to become deep in ourselves. And that's what Swami's really trying to tell us in, these, in this last chapter, which is to look in that direction and only in that direction. Now, are there any comments or questions or thoughts? Mm-hmm. I didn't finish it, correct. The fourth phase, at the Kshatriya level, you're still a soldier and you're still doing battle and you're still fighting for principle. The Brahmin level, which is the priest, is the level at which there's no battle to fight because everything is understood to be coming from God. And at that relationship, your relationships are simply, at that level, your relationships are simply unconditionally given. Of course, at that point, you probably don't have uh, uh, you don't need, let's put it that way, but you may have. But that's just the level of, I, I am in tune with the Spirit and everything that comes to me is exactly what it should be. Where is there a point for resistance? You know, all tension and stress comes when there's a conflict between what is and what we think ought to be. You know, instead of just knowing that things are happening as they're supposed to, we want them to be different. And I don't mean... That's not the same as, again, being passive. We can put out dynamic will. But stress comes when things are a certain way and we don't want them to be that way. We, we, we use half our energy resisting what's going on and not all our energy just moving forward. The Brahman level, there's no resistance. But what would I resist? Understanding that whatever is given to me is perfect for my spiritual growth and therefore I need to throw myself... When we begin to conduct our lives more and more on that level, you find that... Far from becoming passive, you actually become far more effectively dynamic because you're able to uh, be so much more intuitive because intuition is blocked by the ego's likes and dislikes. 
one of the things that blocks us much of the time from knowing higher consciousness is because we're so busy imposing on whatever comes to us our preferences that we can't just calmly see where we need to go. You know, we're just too confused by the vortices of our own likes and dislikes. So the more we can live in the Brahmin level of just saying this must be God's will, therefore I accept it, the more we find that the power, that power can flow through us and we become all the things we were trying to be uh, when we were using only our egos to get there. Oh yes, creating, matching, matching reality with the reality of your own. Yeah, the highest form of courage is to see, to accept reality as it is and then use your magnetic will to to, to mold it into a, a, an even higher level. That really describes Swamiji at the best possible way because he is very calm in the face of whatever happens and very kind and very accepting and not at all resisting. You know, in Autobiography of a Yogi, there's the story of uh, when Yogananda was a young, a young man living with his guru in his guru's ashram, the, the desire came to him to go to the Himalayas, which is a desire he'd had all his life. And he became persuaded in his heart that he would be able to make better spiritual progress by running away to the Himalayas. So he left, and he had the adventure of meeting the sleepless saint and being blessed by him. And then the saint said to him, um, you know, do you have a room where you can close the door and meditate? And Yogananda said, yes, I do. He said, then that's your Himalayan cave. That's all you need. So then Yogananda returned to the ashram. And so then the next chapter begins with Yogananda walking into his guru's ashram and saying, Master, I'm back. And then, then Sri Yukteswar, as Yogananda describes him, treats him as if mere hours had separated them, not days or weeks. Um, in fact, Yogananda was actually gone for a year. And I, for reasons of his own, he, he shortened the time in the book, but that's what Swamiji said. So he walked out, was gone for a year, and then walked back. And so Sri Yukteswar's complete, calm acceptance of his return, as if it was nothing, and Sri and Yogananda said, well, I must have inconvenienced you, because I walked out on my duties. I would have expected you to be angry with me. And Sri Yukteswar responded by saying, anger is the result of thwarted desires. I have no desire that anything be other than it is, and therefore, what is there to be angry about? You know, it's a very, it's a very interesting statement like that. Now, you can have no desire for things other, to be other than they are, but that doesn't mean you can't apply your willpower to manifesting a vision, a beautiful vision that you also see. But that's where he says, you see reality as it is, we're much more likely to be able to be successful in creating a reality that we can imagine if we're able to relate harmoniously to reality as it is. For example, just in your relationships, if you really want to make a harmonious relationship with someone, your chances are much better if you're able to really understand and accept and love the person that you're with. Because the second half of my saying that husbands and wives don't change under pressure is that if they're going to change at all, they will change in an atmosphere of love. I mean, think about it. When when you know that someone is really judging you harshly and wants you to be different, I mean, what happens to our, our courage? 
What happens to our willingness to risk or be open? I mean, it just freezes up, doesn't it? But what happens when you're in an atmosphere in which you feel completely safe? You know, then you're able to to admit things that you would never admit under pressure. You're willing to experiment in ways that you would never under pressure. And even more than that, without it having to be external, your little spirit just begins to sort of open up. Um, and so the, the description that Sri Teshwar, that Yogananda gives us of, of his relationship with Sri Teshwar is a, is a perfect picture of divine friendship. Someone said to me recently also, is marriage really then just friendship? And I said, you mean just friendship? I said, if you can be friends with the person you're married to, you've really accomplished everything. I think what they meant isn't their romance or passion. But but the point is, friendship is the freest and the best relationship of all. Think what it means when somebody's really your friend. You know, contemplate that word and ask yourself if your marriage or your closest relationships are a matter of compulsion or a matter of free will. Ask yourself if you're relating to your partner from from the point of view of, of what they owe you or what they should do or what you expect of them, or if you greet them every day just as a friend, as a matter of free will. And all the discipline that's required to be fresh enough every day to sort of start over with a clean slate and just sort of say, good morning, who are you today? That's what we're really looking for. Okay, why don't we take a short break, and then we'll talk a little bit about the wedding ceremony. Ten minutes. It is on. I'm so good. All right. Any questions or comments or thoughts? Um, I just want to comment for a little bit about the Ananda wedding ceremony, which, you know, as I mentioned, that we all witnessed it, or many of us witnessed it on Saturday. Um, Just for your information, Paramahansa Yogananda wrote wedding vows, and... uh, they're, they're similar to the vows that are here, uh, and people were often married by those. We were married by those vows because these vows didn't exist. Um, but he, and, and he had a, there was a fire ceremony in the wedding, and I believe also an exchange of roses, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was. I'm looking around for someone who would know. I think there was an exchange of roses. Yeah. Um, when Swami Kriyananda married Rosanna Golia about 1985, I think it was. Hosanna is, uh, is a woman from Italy, um, and they were married for about seven or eight years, maybe nine years. There was a, uh, he had a very huge wedding up at Ananda village. We, we called it Ananda Married Italy. It was like a wedding of state. And, uh, uh, and her whole, you know, her whole family came. It was really quite, it really was. It was reminiscent of some royal marriages in some context or another. You know, our whole nation met their whole nation, and it was really quite something. Um, But Swamiji, for that event, created the wedding ceremony, which has become the Ananda wedding ceremony. He wrote, he, he, he drew in music that already existed, but he also wrote most of the music new, and the whole thing was a, like a gift to Rosanna. It was really quite something. And... Uh, Ever since then, that's sort of become the standard wedding at Ananda. He himself said he didn't necessarily expect that everyone would accept the whole thing as the way we all got married. But people just liked it so much that that's been how it's been. And what is so marvelous about it is that it does have so many elements in it that kind of all together put us in touch with the whole idea of what's required. 
um, not, not even considering the music, which for the moment I won't necessarily. But he starts, you know, with this very touching part of the, the, the father, or since it's traditionally the father, but the parent at least, sort of recognizing that, um, you know, my responsibility is, is over and I, I have to relinquish, you know, this responsibility that I've had and launch her out into the world. But he also makes it so, so uplifted by having it be a prayer from the parent that, you know, I've, I've done my best and now I, I, I give her more into your hands because I'm having to step back a little bit. And it just sort of helps set the tone right from the start. Um, then the, uh, the, the married couple, sort of the first thing that they do actively in this is that they do an arati to the altar. And an arati is a, a you know, ritualized form of worship, but the arati primarily is an offering. Um, traditionally, you do something that represents um, all of your senses. And what you do is you give yourself, you, you give everything first to God, and then it comes back to you, and then you're allowed to use it but it's been spiritualized by that offering. So the first thing that the couple does after they've knelt at the altar and listened to the music is they stand up and they offer their inner light into the power of the Spirit. And each one does it individually, and then they do it together as if to say, you know, this is the tone of our marriage, that the first thing we do is we offer who we are to God, and then everything follows from that. And it's a very active thing on on their part. Um, Then he... He really um, has this part, which is the exchange of roses, which is both exceedingly romantic in in the most refined kind of way, and is also, you know, is also, um, as Swami was saying in this chapter, he says, you know, married couples deliberately work with the polarity between male and female. So it's even like uh, strongly expressed here with the, 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 red, the red rose, which is the ardor of faithful devotion. The white rose is purity, and the red rose is, is faithful devotion. The, the masculine outgoing energy, the white receptive energy. And so you, you just have this uh, crystallizing with what you're holding in your hands. Sort of all these ideals are shown. And, and yet, the, at the same time, it's a partnership. You know, they're, they're, they're two matching flowers. And then, then you add this, uh, putting them in a cross, because it's always a balance in a, a, a wedding ceremony between the desire to, to just um, be uplifted on the positive beauty of it and the need to also see it in realistic terms. You know, I, I myself, I always, I'm actually, I've noticed I'm finally getting over it, but I spent many incarnations, I'm sure, in, in, in monastic life repudiating romance. And quite honestly, every time a wedding comes up, and David and I do many weddings, and in, the ministers in Sacramento do dozens of funerals. People die in Sacramento left and right. <laughs> they do more funerals than all other anonymous ministers combined. And David and I may hold the record for weddings. <laughs> but I've 
I've, I always have to sort of steal myself when a wedding is coming, oddly enough, no matter how much I love the couple and no matter how happy I am. I just, I work so hard, I think, to repudiate romance that when I see it just sort of building, I just get really uncomfortable and I have to start over. I, I think I'm almost over it. But, uh, and then once it, once I'm there, I accept it because the vibration takes over, but I just, the theory of it is always distressing to me. Because, uh, I don't like, I don't like romance, I like practicality. You know, I don't like fantasy, I like reality. And so I always have to ground myself. So Swami takes this incredible ceremony between the, the man and the woman with the roses, but he has you lay them in a cross, you know, as a symbol of the fact that, that this is not just going to be a romantic slide, this is going to be the necessity, and we lay them in a cross as a symbol of our willingness to face all trials that come. And then you get to lift them up and look in each other's eyes and pass these flowers back and forth and... Um, you know, dear beloved, I offer you this rose as a symbol of my love for you. And then you also have a tangible thing. You take the roses and you dry them and you save them and you have these little dried up flowers that always remind you of what you've done. <laughs> when I was doing the, um, when I was doing the feng shui of my house, um, I never, we never had pictures of ourselves in our house. I'm just not like that. You know, I know some people keep family pictures everywhere. We just never did have any pictures of us. But, you know, there was like the marriage and relationships corner. And I looked at, in our house at that time, that was where the garbage can was kept. (laughs) David's response was, well, a lot of dumping goes on in marriage. (laughs) Because he liked it there because it was very convenient. But I finally persuaded him. I had to work so hard. I had to knock out shelves and redesign the house to get the garbage out of the marriage corner. But uh, <laughs> um, a picture of Radha and Krishna in a beautiful tapestry. But but also in there, I wanted to make something that would be, you know, really nice. And so I, I wanted to put a red rose and a white. I thought of this. I mean, all of you have seen this over my kitchen sink. And so Linda Gerber was uh, going somewhere and she was going up to the flower mart, and I asked her, I said, if you see, you know, I told her what I needed, and I said, you know, if you could bring me a red rose and a white, a silk flower, it would be lovely. And of course, in the wedding ceremony, they're always, a, you know, a little small flower. She came back with these great big roses like this, and she said, you're way past the bud stage, is what she said. But it's very nice, actually, because I, I mean, I remember that, and I, and that's why I was sort of saying the little dried up ones, I, when I still have them, and they're in a lovely little box with Krishna and Radha on the top. But I also really like looking at those gigantic red flowers, because they are the exuberance of the whole experience sort of happens. It's very nice. And I do remember just, you know, the, what they mean to you. And it helps. It's a symbol, and it really is a, a very real one. Then Swamiji goes into the, um, um, the ceremony of the elements, which was sort of a surprising thing when he offered it because we're not sort of nature, um, we don't worship the nature devas on the path of self-realization, but what he's, what he's doing so powerfully there is many folds. One is, um, it's an affirmation of the fact that we are in relationship to all of life. And that just because we've drawn this little magic circle around the two of us doesn't mean that somehow we're separated from 
the flow of everything. And even by extending it out into, you know, aspects of the world around us and to, to, to ask their blessings on our union, is the way he puts it, you know, to, um, to try to draw in the harmony of creation and to put ourselves in harmony with creation. And it comes down also, as he um, talked about in the book when we were doing the Hindu way of awakening, everything in creation is a symbol for some deeper reality. And the more we can look around us at all times and see the image and the spirit and the lesson of the divine behind it, uh, the more we'll be capable of living up to all the idealistic things that we promised in this wedding and that we've been talking about this whole time. So, you know, he talks about um, the, uh, the faithfulness of, of earth, the flow of water, you know, the transforming from air and sweet fragrances, pure freedom. And so you sort of wave that incense around and you watch the incense just floating off and you think of that, that spirit of pure freedom, which is what, from I and mine, is what he's saying, which of course is the one thing that we've been talking about is required above all. And then he has from rising fire the understanding that human love must ever be moving upward. And that's just, and then the fire stays as an image, you know, for later on in the ceremony that this isn't just a, 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 a union here, but this must be a union that's going up. And then he has that part, then you go into the fire ceremony, um, which is where he says, destroy in me the seeds of earthly desire, and you put the rice in. I said once to Swami, hmm, maybe at a wedding you could say something else. <laughs> he said, no, I think that's just what should be there. But it, it, every, time, every time a couple does that, I think, you know, this is really a different kind of wedding, because mostly people get married to fulfill their desires. And in this wedding ceremony, right in the wedding ceremony, you say, destroy in me the seeds of desire. In other words, it's almost like you say, I'm getting married so that I'll never need to marry again. You know, it's like I want to overcome everything that holds me. And our commitment to each other is to transcend um, the form that brought us together. Not to transcend the love that brought us together, but to transcend the form that brought us together. And so people stand up there, I mean, this on their wedding day, and they're promising these um, very powerful things, and it really, again, helps orient us toward where we're going. But he doesn't just stay there, because then we go into the, the vows. And again, Swami set up two sets of vows, which is very dear. You know, I was married, as I said before, this ceremony was created, um, and we were using the vows that Yogananda wrote, which are, which are equally uplifting. And... Um, I had at that time I was involved in local politics, and so I invited a number of the of people from town, local politicians, county supervisor, and others to come. And one man in particular, who happened to be the head of the county supervisor, I mean, it's a very small town, so political offices were not a big deal in a town like that. Very nice man with whom I had a particular connection, and I think he he came. I'm saying I think he was may have been the only one, but he did come, and it was the first experience he'd had really of what. Ananda was in its reality, not merely Ananda people doing something else. And afterwards, he just remarked, he said, boy, when you get married here, you're really married. (laughs) 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 Because the seriousness of it and the level of the commitment is not small. 
I mean, sometimes on the rare occasions I've been at other weddings, I tend to feel the same way. Are they married? You know, did they do it? You know, where is it? Where did it happen? When did it happen? But uh, the first vow you make is to God. First you go to the altar, and Swami even has such specific instructions, which couples don't generally follow. Kneel at the altar, not yet holding hands, he says. I've given up trying to sort of, you know, go like that between the couple. (laughs) It just seems, I mean, they're they're pretty much involved in doing it together, and they pretty much are going to hold hands. But he actually has that instruction, which is to say, this is your vow to God. This isn't your vow to each other. You're kneeling here together in front of all these people in this huge situation to unify you, but still you together to the altar. And you, you make this first commitment, which is my life is for God alone. And we're going to do this together, but first for God, first the arity, first for God. And then once you've made that commitment, then you're allowed to sort of look right into each other's eyes and make the promise to one another. But it's like, here comes the power to make the promise to each other. Uh, somebody was telling me that there was a wedding at Ananda Village recently where I don't, there was a couple doing the wedding and somehow they got confused and so they only gave the vows to God twice. <laughs> couple never actually gave the other vows to each other. Only a few people noticed it, so they just let it go on. <laughs> and the vows you make to God are basically, may everything we do lead us to divine attunement. You know, it's not about um, anything about us. It's just made the process of our relationship with each other the process of divine understanding. And then he end, the ends by saying, teach us to love all beings equally in thee. It's such a sort of contradiction of the idea that, oh, this is such a special love we share. You know, it, it's that our love becomes really special because it becomes a stepping stone. And uh, I remember once uh, when I was having a lot of difficulty getting along with this one person, and I was full of ridiculous theories about how to solve my problems. I said to Swamiji once, well, the problem is not really that I dislike this person. <laughs> can't believe I said this. It's not really so much that I dislike this person. It's that I like other people a little too much. So maybe if I sort of just was a little less, uh, I had a little less ardor in my friendships, then maybe I wouldn't feel so negative toward this one. He said, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. <laughs> Like completely nutty, and so and Swami so said, you know, God gives us our, our 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 passionate friendships, our passionate loves, so that we can recognize the heights to which we can we can aspire, and bring everyone else up to that level, you know. And so that's when after we we're in the middle of this passionate one to one relationship, but teach us to love all beings equally. And, you know, you, you sort of, it's like, again, these, like right in the middle of the wedding ceremony, you hear something that is so contradictory to the traditional romantic idea. You have to just stop for a minute and really think what we're doing here. You know, this isn't to celebrate how special this is. This is to use this as a doorway to make everything as exalted as this. And it's not even all people, it's all beings. Um, and then you get to... Um, speak to each other. 
And you, you make promises that are really quite marvelous. Even this, I will never compete with you. Swamiji said, well, I thought I should throw a little reality into the vows, he said. But it, he put it so beautifully, I will never compete with you, but will cooperate with you always for our own and all others' highest good. It's such a simple statement. I cooperate. You know, I won't. it's not about obedience. It's not about subservience. It's not anything. It's just simple cooperation. Swami uses the word cooperation a lot. In fact, recently he was talking about the fact that we ought to use it a lot more because cooperation is a very Dwapara Yuga concept because it's just really about equality before God, within our own hearts, in our relationships, but it's totally reciprocal. It has so many implications that are so simple. You know, just the thought of cooperating. I mean, it's almost like it's the baseline. You know, I will cooperate with you. It doesn't even say, I will eat, I, you know, I will love you or I will be cheerful about it. It just says, I'll cooperate with you. In other words, I won't entirely obstruct the flow of your life. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thought to just use in your mind. Sometimes the simplest ideas are the ones that really carry you through. Am I even being cooperative? You know, when we're in moods, when we're scowling, when we're judgmental, we're not even cooperating. For our, for our own and all others' highest good. And then you have just an unequivocal, I will forgive you always and under all circumstances. And that's a big one. Just a simple statement, nothing else. And then he talks about seeing truth as you see it, to perceive, and to be guided as you feel deeply within yourself. It's an affirmation of what we just, of, of respecting the vow we've all made to God, which is that we each have to do it in our own way. And I will work with you always, he throws in the phrase, in freedom. And that's the implication of friendship. And again, may our love grow ever deeper, ever purer, more expansive, until in our perfected love we find the perfect love of God. One of the quotations from Yogananda that was spoken once was, "Um, human love perfectly expressed is almost the same as divine love. It's just really a wonderful thought that where, where we are and where we're going. Then, of course, we exchange rings to love, honor, and serve with in joyful harmony. Again, harmony and cooperation. And then that's it. Pronounce you married in the eyes of man, in the eyes of God. Beautiful statement, isn't it? You can't really do better than the classic ones. So, I think that's the end of the story. Is there anything else that needs to be discussed or talked about? Asked about? All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.